My first job out of college was in retail banking. And about a year into my tenure at the bank, I was approached about transferring from the retail division to the commercial vision, division to work on a special project. And special should be understood as in air quotes. It, it was a special project in that it was one that no one wanted to do. It was like the banking equivalent of cleaning carnival toilets. Now, the senior vice president was trying to convince me to make this move to the commercial division to work on this special project, and he was explaining how important this project was to the bank. And he, he said, the man who would be your boss if you were to make this move, when, when, when I hired him, I swore to him that he would not have to work on this project. But this project has become so important to the bank that I had to break that promise. Sixty seconds later, he says to me, I promise you, I will not let this project stymie your career. And I thought to myself, that is a promise that I cannot take to the bank. And I determined to hold that promise loosely, regarding it as more of a gamble than a guarantee. In the human realm of many times, whether due to malice or unforeseen circumstances, promises aren't kept. Promises made at the wedding altar. Promises made in classrooms, in corporate boardrooms. Promises made in campaign speeches. They get broken. And so we learn to hold promises loosely, viewing them as gambles, more than guarantees. At the end of the previous passage that we studied last week in Hebrews 6, the author explained that he's, he has used warning and exhortation to move the recipients to do what others have done, which is persevere unto the inheritance of the promises. And now in 6, 13 through 20, he explains why God's promise is not a gamble, but rather it is a guarantee. One that we ought not hold loosely, but rather that we ought to hold fast as the bedrock of our faith. And his first step toward making that argument is, is to teach us that God's promise is guaranteed by a self-sworn oath. God's promise is guaranteed by a self-sworn oath. Look with me again at verse 13. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. Now, it may be helpful for us to get a little bit of the backstory of this promise that God made to Abraham. The Lord began to make this promise to a man who at the time was called Abram in Genesis chapter 12. In Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, read this way. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. The, the promise to make Abram a great nation assumed that Abraham was going to have children. And at that time, he had no children, and his wife was barren. And in Genesis chapter 12, verse 7, 
Upon Abram's arrival in Canaan, God said, to your offspring, I'll give this land. So he makes explicit there, there's going to be an heir, at least one. The word offspring in that text is is a singular. And to that offspring, he's going to give this land. So there's a land promise. Years go by, years go by, and there is no son born to Abram. We get to Genesis 15, and Abram is troubled by this. He still has no son. God reiterates to him there in Genesis 15 that Abram will have many children. There'll be so many, they'll be like the stars in the sky in number. Genesis 15, 6 reads this way, And he, Abram, believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. Yahweh further affirmed that promise by making a covenant with Abram there in Genesis 15. Now we fast forward to Genesis 22. The Lord has finally given Abram a son. By this time, his his name is Abraham. He's given him a son by Sarah, his barren wife, in the form of Isaac. So Isaac is the fulfillment of this, this promise of God. Genesis 22, verse 2, the Lord said, Take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. Now, we've been through Leviticus in the last few months, and and you may remember that that burnt offering is an offering that that, that you slaughter, and it's just burned up completely as an offering to God. What did Abram do? Abraham do? He took Isaac up on the mountain, and just as he's about to slaughter Isaac in obedience to God, the angel of the Lord stops him. And upon that obedience, God reaffirmed the promise once again. This time, He he affirmed it with an oath. In Genesis 22, verses 16 and following, Yahweh said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you've done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you. And I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you've obeyed my voice. Now, this promise is not simply central to the storyline of Genesis, but rather it's central to the storyline of the rest of the Bible. It's central to the storyline of all human history. The promise to Abraham is the conduit through which God would keep his Genesis 3.15 promise of a seed of the woman who's going to come along to crush the head of the serpent. And it's in that sense which through Abraham comes blessing for the whole world. Jesus is the fulfillment of that Genesis 3.15 seed. He's He's the fulfillment of the seed promised to Abraham. Jesus came to bless the world and to crush the head of the serpent by reconciling man to God through His atoning death on the cross and through His resurrection from the dead on the third day. And so... Paul teaches in Galatians chapters 3 and 4 that believers in Jesus Christ, both Jew and Gentile, we share in this promise to Abraham. The promise to Abraham is the promise to which New Testament believers hold. It's absolutely crucial to Christianity. So we have a promise that God has made in in this storyline. There's a promise and then there is a guarantee of that same promise by an oath, the Lord, the Lord said, by myself I have sworn I will keep this promise. Now, 
In, in Hebrews chapter 6, we'll jump down to verse second, 16 for a second. Look at verse 16. Where people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes, an oath is final for confirmation. Now, I'll talk about why people do that in a minute. But if you're God, and it's the norm for this to be the case with, a, with, a, with an oath, that you swear by someone greater than yourself, well, for God, this is a bit of a problem. Because there is no one greater by whom He can swear. No one. He is perfect in all of His attributes. And so there, there is no one other than Himself by whom He can swear. And the point of all this is that this greatest of God's promises, He has not just promised, but He has guaranteed it by an oath. I swear by myself, I'm going to come through on this promise. And again, the significance for us is that this promise undergirds our very faith. We are among the children promised to Abraham. And that land that was promised to Abraham so long ago, later in Hebrews, the author is going to reveal that the real fulfillment of that land promise is not merely Palestine, but a new heaven and a new earth. In other words, the rest which we long to enter rides on God keeping that promise to Abraham. And He's not only promised it, but He has sworn an oath to guarantee it. God's promise is guaranteed by a self-sworn oath. Second, God's promise is obtained by those who persevere. It's obtained by those who persevere. Look at verse 15. And thus, Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. And thus, and so, he's pointing back to the thing about God making a promise and guaranteeing it. Because God's promise is so solid, it is not the case that Abraham patiently waited and then found that God didn't come through. He didn't didn't find God's promise to be a gamble, but rather, Abraham obtained the promise. And that's perhaps what, what many people today are concerned about when they when they hear the gospel, when they hear about this way of salvation that comes through Jesus Christ. What if I give my life to this Jesus thing, endure all the difficulties associated with following Jesus, only to find out that Yahweh won't keep the promises made? What if I gamble and lose? This has happened to me before. People have made promises to me. They didn't come through. What if God does the same thing? And the main point of the whole section is, this is not a gamble. There is no losing. For the one who perseveres. Notice how he returns to a major theme of the book here. Perseverance. Who is it who who obtains this promise? Those who patiently wait or or endure or persevere. The Lexham English Bible renders, renders this phrase, and so by persevering he obtained the promise. Young's literal translation reads, and so having patiently endured he obtained the promise. Waiting patiently here means enduring in faith, continuing in belief. Psalm 25.3 tells us, Indeed, none who wait for you shall be put to shame. And that idea of waiting in the Old Testament is being brought into the New Testament by the author of Hebrews. And it pictures, this, this idea of waiting for the Lord, it pictures steady trusting in the Lord over time. Waiting for the Lord means waiting expectantly for Him to come through because you know He's going to come through. 
And so the person who is waiting for the Lord is somebody who can say, I'm not losing my mind in fear and anxiety while I wait because I know that just as surely as the sun is coming up tomorrow, God will keep that promise. Genesis 22 is a picture of enduring, persevering faith. And we'll take more time to consider this when we get to chapter 11. But Abraham waited so long for Isaac to be born. That, that, that waiting and waiting and waiting, it taught him that for God, length of time from promise to fulfillment means nothing regarding the certainty of that promise being kept. God is going to keep His promise. He is going to keep His promise. And so the command to offer Isaac as a sacrifice was not received by Abraham as the end of God's faithfulness. No, God made a promise to give him descendants as numerous as the stars, to give him those descendants and, and to give him and those descendants the, the land of Canaan, and to bless all the nations through him. And God said, Through Isaac your descendants will be named. And so Abraham knew one way or another, he and Isaac were coming down from the mountain. And so he persevered in faith. He continued believing through that most difficult of tests. Abraham is the first example of one who persevered in faith unto inheritance of the promise, we might say. And I mentioned last week we have this parade of people like him in chapter 11. These are people who believed the promise of God and so followed him in faith, waiting patiently for the fulfillment. And by inserting this little, this little phrase here, by waiting patiently, he's just reminding us what he's been saying before, that his perseverance and faith is necessary in order to inherit the promise. So here, he's using the example of Abraham to show this is no gamble. Those who persevere 100% obtain that promise. It's a call to persevere based upon the absolute trustworthiness of the promiser. Third, God's promise gives powerful encouragement to hold fast to hope. God's promise gives powerful encouragement to hold fast to hope. Verse 16. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes, an oath is final for confirmation. One commentator shares this about oaths in the ancient world. By common definition, an oath is a definitive and binding confirmation of the spoken word and it invalidates any contradiction of the statement made. So men would swear an oath by someone greater than themselves or by the name of someone greater than themselves in order to confirm their agreement with somebody or to, to assure the other party of their truthfulness in a matter. Deuteronomy 6.13 and Deuteronomy 10.20 instruct God's people to swear by the name of Yahweh. Because He is so much greater than everybody. Don't just swear by, somebody, by a human greater than yourself. Swear by Yahweh. And to lie under an oath like that, an oath sworn by the name of Yahweh, that was to violate the third commandment against taking the Lord's name in vain. So this was a, pro, a, a practice among men because men can't trust each other. Swearing by God's name assured each other that their word was trustworthy. And, and they found this to be, to be helpful because they, they, they didn't trust one another without an oath from the other party. Now look at verse 17. So, 
When God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of His purpose, He guaranteed it with an oath. The promise to Abraham is, is still the referent here. So that's, that's still what he's talking about. And notice that this promise to Abraham is a promise to multiple heirs. He makes that explicit here. God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise. And I take that to mean that, that, that this is in, in, in indicated as something that's intended to give us confidence in the promise made to Abraham. It's not just to Abraham, not just to Isaac and Jacob, but as Paul writes in Galatians, it is, is a promise to all of those who are of the faith of Abraham, who've put their trust in Christ and who are, therefore, Abraham's offspring and heirs according to promise. In other words, God wanted to convince us and all the believing throughout time of the unchangeable nature of His purpose. God isn't going to change His mind. He isn't going to change the plan. There are a host of God's attributes that make that an impossibility. That's why we're told in Numbers 23.19, that's a reference that's worth writing down. Numbers 23.19 reads this way, God is not man that He should lie or a son of man that He should change His mind. Has He said and will He not do it? Or has He spoken and will He not fulfill it? Just by virtue of who God is, His purpose is unchangeable. So consider this, for God to guarantee His promise with an oath, that was completely unnecessary. I mean, humans need to pinky swear in order to assure one another that they're being honest. God can't go back on His Word. In the, in the truest sense, His Word is unchangeable. No need for Him to swear anything. I mean, the, the naked promise, the promise all by itself is sufficient for the, the receiver to take it to the bank. But, because we use and understand oaths in our dealings with one another, and we find them to be binding, God, in His unbelievably generous desire to convince us of His truthfulness, even He swore an oath by Himself. And what was the purpose of that? Look at verse 18. So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie. Now let's just stop right there for a moment. What exactly are those two unchangeable things? The two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie are the two things that He's already talked about, the promise and the oath. Okay? Now, my God is so big, so strong and so mighty, there's... Yeah, it's a great song. Now, now the theological nerd in me would like to add a caveat. All right? My God is so big, so strong, and so mighty, there's nothing my God cannot do that is consistent with His attributes and being. It doesn't ring quite as much, but it makes it true. There, there are actually a good number of things that God can't do. And, and none of these inabilities will break your heart. And just as we praise God for His abilities, we should praise Him for His inabilities, among which is this thing where He cannot lie. And because He cannot lie, that means He cannot break promises and He cannot break oaths. 
Titus 1.2 calls God the unlying God. The unlying God. Non-lying is, is part of His essential attributes. He can't not be a non-lying God. It's impossible for Him because of who He is. Just like I can't be a woman. There is no way. Every cell in my body testifies through genetic code. I'm a man. Can't be any other way. Similarly, God can't be a liar. He just can't. His essence is that He is truth. It's the source of all truth. And therefore, He is a non-liar. And because He is a non-liar, He can't break promises and oaths. And, and listen, it's, it's not simply that God chooses not to break His Word. He can't pull it off. He just can't do it because of who He is. Now think about this for a moment. How many promises have you broken? Can, can you even start to think of them all? How many times has someone sworn to you that they would do something and they didn't do it? Now likely, the, the more painful instances come to mind right away. But who among us can count the times that we've broken our word or someone has broken their word to us? No one can. None of us can count the times because we are conceived as liars. In, in our short lives, our brushes with dishonesty and infidelity, they're so commonplace that they can't even all be remembered. How many times has God been unfaithful? How many times has the Lord Jesus failed to keep His Word? How many times has the Holy Spirit inspired a falsehood? None! Because God can't. He can't lie. What a glorious incapability. Do you realize what this means to us? We can trust Him. And, and, and so, is it a gamble to bank on the Word of God? Is it a gamble to, to, to bank on His promise? God's Word is the one thing you can trust in this life and in the next. Trusting, trusting God is the opposite of a gamble. It's the only sure thing. And, and how gracious of Him to, to double up on this like He does, swearing an oath on top of a promise. For, for God, that's the definition of overkill. He already can't not keep a promise, but for our sake, to put our minds and hearts at ease, he, he swears an oath on top of it. More than that, an oath sworn by His own name. Continuing in verse 18, and He did this in order that we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. Now, here, hope is not our cultural, wishful thinking, like, I, I hope the dining room is clean at Chipotle. It's not that kind of thing. And, and here, it's not even referring to our own hope as an action, but it refers to the object of hope. The, the thing that we hope in, that's, that's what he's referring to. Hope is a noun right here. It's another way of referring to this Oath-guaranteed promise of God. The hope set before us is the promise of God. And, and we who have fled for refuge, this is, this is language that he's, he's grabbing from 
the Pentateuch by way of the Psalms. So you'll read this kind of language in the Psalms over and over. We fled him for refuge. The psalmist gets that from the Pentateuch. Remember the cities of refuge? If you want to read about the cities of refuge, you can read about that in Numbers 35. But very quickly, the situation is you've got a manslayer, somebody who kills another person unintentionally. That manslayer could flee to one of six cities of refuge and find safety from the avenger, the family member of that person who was killed accidentally. The manslayer, if he goes to that city of refuge to find safety from the avenger, he has to stay there until the death of the sitting high priest. And then, after the death of the high priest, then he could safely return to his own city. But if he left the city of refuge before the death of the high priest, well, then it was open season, and the manslayer could and likely would be killed. Now, this language is intended to remind us of those cities of refuge. And and what what he's reminding us is that Jesus is our city of refuge. We run to Him for safety from vengeance. And to leave that city, to leave Jesus Christ, is spiritual suicide. And it's never, never safe to leave that city because He's a high priest who never dies. So we have fled to Jesus for refuge and God guaranteed His promise with an oath so that We could hold fast to this city of refuge. We could hold fast to Jesus Christ, knowing that as we cling to Him, we will be safe. And he further characterizes this hope in verse 19. He says, we have this, he's referring to the hope, we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. That is, this anchor is the hope set before us, the, the oath guaranteed promise of God. It is sure and steady as an anchor of the soul. Sure and steady. These are very close synonyms, both in English and in Greek. And their value is not in their distinction, how they're different from each other, but in their similarity. The author is piling up synonyms on top of one another to drive home the nature of this hope. And by assigning these two synonyms to an anchor, he's driving it home even further. Anchors are by nature. Steady and steadfast. That's their job. They, they, they keep a boat from being moved. And so that he, he says specifically, this anger is, anchor is sure and steady. Well, that's similar to, to the overkill represented by God guaranteeing with an oath His own promise. This hope is, is the most sure and steady anchor you're going to find. Now, the tendency of of humans in a fallen world is to pay so much attention to the shifting currents of politics and, and powers and punditry that our souls are tossed around like a ship without an anchor. And that seems to be what's happening with the original recipients. They followed Christ, but trouble around them is just tossing them around. Do you, do you remember the language from chapter 2? Let me read to you chapter 2 verse 1. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we've heard, lest we drift away from it. Do you remember that that drifting away, that's nautical language? Picturing a ship without an anchor. And the antidote there in chapter 2 to drifting away was to pay much closer attention to the gospel. Now, here in chapter 6, he's just saying the same thing, but he's saying it a different way. How do you keep from drifting? How do you you keep from being blown around by the winds and waves of the world? How do you overcome doubt 
How, how do you handle it when it seems that in various ways your loved ones are abandoning you? What, what, what do you do when your particular trouble is tempting you to question everything and, and look to other means of comfort? What do you do? You cling to the one thing you know to be true. This oath-guaranteed promise of God, it can't be untrue. Biblical hope is a sure and steady anchor of the soul. It, it allows a person to be able to say, I'm, I'm being blown around by the troubles of this life. My own heart is, is being challenged by the lies of the world, by my own failings, by the failings of others against me. But I know what awaits me if I cling to Christ in faith, and that is rest. Because God has promised, and He has sworn an oath guaranteeing that promise, and this is a God who cannot lie. How, how frequently we rehearse our troubles and how infrequently we, re we rehearse God's promises. How, how sadly and consistently we neglect such a tremendous source of comfort, God's unchangeable promise. He describes it further, moving on in verse 19. A hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus is gone as a forerunner on our behalf. This promise of God has opened the way to the very holy of holies for us. Jesus is gone as a forerunner. Do you remember what this means? Remember that, that John the Baptist was, was the forerunner of Christ? A forerunner is somebody who, who goes ahead and prepares the way for the one coming behind them. So John the Baptist was the forerunner for Jesus in that he prepared the way for Christ by preaching a baptism of repentance. Well, now Jesus is our forerunner into the Holy of Holies, preparing the way for us by, by removing the wrath of God for, from us so that we too could enter the Holy of Holies behind Jesus. That we would be where we were created to be, and that is in the glorious presence of our Creator. So he notes that Jesus has done this, moving on in verse, verse 20, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So now we're coming back around to where he started in chapter 5. Jesus is a priest of the order of Melchizedek. And perhaps now, after these, this chapter and a half almost of, of warning and encouragement, in reiterating the promise, perhaps now we see why it's so important for us to understand this concept of Jesus Christ as a priest of the order of Melchizedek. Jesus' unique priesthood is an essential component of the sureness and the steadiness of our soul's anchor. When he's done explaining it, he'll conclude in chapter 10, verse 23, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. He who promised is faithful. Now think about this. How much more certain could be the fulfillment of a promise guaranteed by the self-sworn oath of a God who cannot lie? What else could possibly be more certain? Not something that you see with your own eyes, not something that you have learned by experience, not something that you have read in some other book. There is nothing, nothing as certain 
as the fulfillment of a promise guaranteed by a self-sworn oath of a God who cannot lie. We can know that those who persevere have a certain fulfillment waiting for them. So, this is where this is all headed. So, persevere. Hold not lightly to this promise, but hold fast to the confession of your hope. Trust in Christ. Trust Him with your sin. Trust Him with your life. Trust Him with your circumstances. And to fuel that perseverance, make it the habit of your life to rehearse these promises of God, always aware that these promises have been made by a God with a glorious inability. He cannot fail to keep His word. Can't do it. There is... No gamble here. There is no gamble here. There is only a guarantee. I want to talk to to those of you for whom these things may be completely new. Maybe you are somebody who would say, "I, I don't really know much about any of this. I don't know the Lord Jesus. Certainly wouldn't say I'm a follower of Jesus. I would just ask you, What promises, so to speak, are you resting your eternity on? What promises are you believing? Let me me suggest to you that, that if you are clinging to a promise that does not have Jesus Christ as its object, you are making an horrific gamble. It's a gamble that you will lose. Because this Jesus Christ has said there is one way to the Father and it's through me. Through Jesus Christ alone we can be saved. And so I would suggest to you that, that today is the day that you cast aside all other promises, cast aside all other hopes, cast aside all other wishful thinking. Well, I hope this is true. I just don't know. Cast all that aside and cling with everything you are to this promise in faith. Believe in Jesus Christ. Repent of your sins and turn toward Him alone who can reconcile you to the Father. This Jesus Christ who has worn the sins of sinners on the cross, who's paid for the wrath of God on that cross, and who has now been raised from the dead three days later and ascended to the Father where He sits even now, waiting for the day when He will be be told by His Father to return and get His own. Cling to the promise of Jesus Christ, otherwise on that day you will not be His own. And you will find whatever it is that you're trusting in right now to have been the worst possible gamble when this morning you heard about a guarantee. Cling to this guarantee that is the promise of God in Jesus Christ. If you have any questions about that, please come and see me afterwards. Or Pastor Rick who led us in the Lord's Supper this morning. We have other elders. Honestly, this room is filled with people who could likely answer any question that you have. But ask someone. If you have any questions about this guarantee of Jesus Christ and the promise made by God, let's pray. Father, we're tremendously grateful to you for your kindness to us. What an unbelievable generosity, almost illogical generosity for you to swear an oath on a promise. We we praise you for that generosity and and to accommodate our weakness of heart, our weakness of 
faith to double up on your inability to lie by swearing an oath on a promise. And we pray, Father, that that reality would weigh on us with this this glorious security that what you have said you will do, you will do. You already have kept so many promises fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ that He would be born of a virgin, that He would die an atoning death on the cross, that He would be raised from the dead for us. You've kept all of these promises, Lord. Help us to to believe that what is left outstanding will be kept because of who You are. That clinging to faith, we will find that on the other side there is waiting for us the land of promise. That promise that you made to Abraham so long ago. Grant us, Father, to cling to that and so cling to faith in Jesus Christ. He is the one who has gone there for us as a forerunner. We thank you that these things are true. We pray, Father, that our lives would reflect all the more, all the time that they are true. And we pray, Father, that those among us who have not believed or who are doubting, that you would weigh upon them the decision before them to either go with a gamble or to go with a guarantee. Pray that by your Spirit you would lead them to trusting Christ, the only guarantee. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.